Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op this Thursday morning. You know, I'm back in the studio here in Silver Springs, Maryland, D.C. metropolitan area. Last week, we were at National Association of Housing Co-ops annual meeting in Phoenix. And it's really great to get out and talk to people. And it's also great to be back home with, with the engineer, Mr. Stanley. And today we have Mr. Mark Winston Griffith on the line with us. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. How are you? How are you today, sir? I'm great. I'm here in Brooklyn, USA. Okay, and I can barely hear you. I don't know if I need you to talk up a little bit or so. Okay. That's better. Is that any better? Yep, yep. That's much better. Thank you. Okay, good. In Brooklyn. That's right. Is that where you... Central Brooklyn, to be... To Central Brooklyn, to be more specific, Bedford-Stuyvesant, to be even more specific than that, it's the... When I talk about Central Brooklyn, I mean the black epicenter of of Brooklyn. Okay, Beth Stuyvesant. Did you grow up in Brooklyn or in New York? I did. I was born in Crown Heights, which is the adjacent neighborhood to Bedford Stuyvesant, um, both historically black areas, and um, lived in Queens for a little while, but have been in Brooklyn consistently for the last uh, 33 years. All right. Well, I was born in New York, but grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia. <laughs> okay, nice. Nice transition. <laughs> Bet Stuy, um, where did you go to school? I'll just give a little, people a little bit about your backdrop, and I particularly want to sure. get over to how did you learn about co-ops, but where did you go to school and all of that good stuff? Sure, sure, sure. So, again, I was born in Crown Heights, went to public schools in the Crown Heights area and then in and then in Queens. And then for high school, I took a dramatic turn. I ended up going to a boarding school in New Jersey, of all places, mm. um, where my uncle was the only black teacher at, at the time. Uh, and so it was a place called Lawrenceville in, in New Jersey. It was a boarding school. And then um, ended up going to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island got a degree in English and African-American studies, and then came back to Brooklyn. And then after that, I went to, um, I actually traveled to Nigeria for about a year and a half and was in graduate school there at the University of Ibadan. And I uh, got, got a master's in, in literature, in, in, uh, in English literature. And have then then came back to Brooklyn, been back and been here ever since. A master's in English literature from Nigeria. Okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, most people uh, would, may not know this, but Nigeria is considered to be the birthplace of West African literature written in English, particularly the University of Ibadan, where I was. And if you if you know anything about 
African literature and no names like Wale Shoyinka or Chinua Achebe, um, both who are, you know, legends in literature and who have also, you know, Wale Shoyinka won the Nobel Prize in literature. It's, it's, a, it's a hollowed place uh, as far as African literature is concerned. Um, again, you know, that university in particular and so I just was surrounded by that rich legacy of, of, of literature that was particularly political um, mm-hmm. and that really sort of prided itself in not being separated by the people, from the people, but really being something that was generated from the voice of the grassroots. And so I, I, um, I did a, my, my thesis work was in poetry. In Nigeria, that uh, a generation of poets at the time who were really transforming the the liter- literary landscape and really talking to political issues, and again, who saw themselves not as some kind of elite group of of folks, but as spokespersons and you know people who are speaking from the, from the grassroots. You know, I um, I pay homage to people like you. That hmm. that have studied the word um, and words. I I got math mathematics and then uh, undergrad in math and chemistry and a master's in math and then I got over to the MBA and through life I've become. Uh, I haven't become a lover of words yet, but they're not the enemy they were at one point in my life. <laughs> okay. yeah, well, you know, you can flip the script for me because I I, um, I struggled with math and science all throughout school, and I have a deep amount of respect for people like you, actually, who can hold their own with, with numbers and, and science, and I, I wish I was able to do so. So, you know, um, uh, right back at you. Yeah, and, and I have wished that I could know the words and put words together that would say what I'm thinking or what I want to say in a way that people could get it. And that's why I just, I've, I've come to really respect words and res- I've always respected people like you that study words and understood words and know how to put them together and read them and get the meaning of it and all of that stuff. But somehow that didn't work for me. And I'm just, I just turned 71 and I'm be- I, in the last 10, 15 years, particularly with this radio program and talking a lot more, words are, are exciting and they are not fun yet. <laughs> They get there one. <laughs> well, so, I mean, they're, they're fun for me, and I consider myself a writer. I've been a journalist, and words are are fun and exciting for me. They're they're a creative outlet for me, you know. But it's still, I still struggle with it. I mean, as as a writer, you know, I the the writing process for me can be torturous sometimes, as other writers will certainly attest to. So. Um, yeah, it's something that I love, something that I feel expresses who I am and has been a, a great way for me to communicate to people around me. And, and a big part of my work, you know, as I guess we'll get into, is communication through words, um, mm-hmm. as well as other means of, of communication. But um, it's something that's very important to me, and then I, I, I take pride in, in being able to try to master I take my hat off to you, bro. Really do. Respect to you, too. Thank you. And so, okay, so you're studying the words. How do you spell the University of? Ibadan. Um, Ibadan. I-B-A-D-A-N. 
and does it's it have in, a special in, meaning? It's in, it's, I mean, you know, most people know Lagos, so it's about an hour um, away from Lagos. It's one of the biggest cities in Nigeria, uh, Ibadan, that is. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, so you've been back here. How did you get into co-ops? What 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 led you there? Did you grow up with them in Brooklyn, or did you? How did you find them? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I would say, um, you know, back in the late '80s, early '90s, I, you know, after coming back from Nigeria. I, you know, I, before I went to Nigeria, I was working for an elected official and I was an activist. And when I came back from Nigeria, I really wanted to sort of go beyond electoral politics and, and street activism and be a part of some form of community building. And so I got a job with a community development corporation that was located in Crown Heights. And the director at that time had this vision of really, you know, going beyond the vision of economic development that I think had been practiced in the neighborhood up to that point Mm -hmm. and had this vision of community economic development that was rooted in democratic values and cooperative ideals. And so what the director did at that time had me, she had me study a whole host of cooperative formations. You know, she looked, I looked at credit unions. I looked at land trusts, looked at food co-ops, looked at um, mutual housing associations. And, you know, we try to distinguish ourselves by saying, you know, this is in a, again, at that moment, um, there are a lot of different things going on. Um, you know, this was a time when bank redlining was being discussed a, a great deal. And a time when I think that people were really sort of challenging conventional forms uh, for conventional ways of community development that were more um, capitalistic. I mean, I think in, in a place like central Brooklyn, you have a very long tradition of cooperative development, you know, um, going back to um, followers of Marcus Garvey and starting a, uh, a credit union around, you know, right after the, the depression. Um, and so, you had that legacy in central Brooklyn and I came into it looking at how would we use that? How would we harness those kinds of values and energy in central Brooklyn in a way that had not um, happened before. And so in studying those models, I eventually kind of settled on a a credit union because I think that in many ways it struck people's popular imagination. It was a very concrete alternative to the corporate financial system that we had in the neighborhood and that was identified with exploitation and with redlining and of systematically disinvesting from our neighborhoods. And so through all of that research and investigation really settled upon a credit union in with the support of something called the National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions, which, you know, saw an opportunity to give us technical assistance and to start a credit union in what is the the largest concentra- the largest urban concentration of black people in the country, central Brooklyn, which is low and moderate income, uh, but where black people have been for generations. Well, so, I wanna, I wanna um, go, in, yeah, go ahead. I want to go, Mark, I want to go all the way back to Marcus Garvey, 
because when I came into studying this co-op world, it was only about 25 years ago. And I did not think blacks were in the co-ops until I really got into Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhart's book, Collective Carriage, and found out that through her book and some other works that Marcus Garvey, and you're talking about the mid-1800s now, went to England as a slave, and the cooperators over there helped him in both donating money and helping him get speeches so he could get enough money to buy, buy his freedom, and he came back a freedman. So he was in the co-ops, you know, early on in his world, early on. So when you mentioned Marcus Garvey and the credit union, is you've got the history right there in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a strong Garvey um, movement in New York, in, in Harlem, and in central Brooklyn. I mean, when people think of black people in New York, they automatically think of Harlem. Right. And, of course, Marcus Garvey had a very strong connection to Harlem. But central Brooklyn in you know may not be as high profile as harlem but was just as important to the development of black thought black politics black culture in new york and throughout the country you know the the song you know duke ellington's um um song um the a-train is all about you know, people going between Harlem and, and Central Brooklyn. We got Mark, so they're, they're, I'm, they're, I'm, Mark, I'm sorry to cut ahead. you off. We'll come back and talk about the A-Train. But we got to take our first break. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's why WOL is a great, great partner for this program. We are wanting to give you the information to about cooperatives so that you can join together with different people and create co-ops to solve your community problems. And Mr. Mark Winston Griffith from Bed-Stuy, New York, is on the line with us today, and he was just talking about the A-train and, and <laughs> Bed-Stuy. Please continue, sir. Sure. No, I mean, I was just bringing up the A-Train song that was made popular by Duke Ellington to just highlight the fact that there was this vibrant communication and, and communities, uh, you know, uh, in many ways, Harlem and Central Brooklyn were almost like in black cities in, in a sense. And so Garveyism was very strong in, in Central Brooklyn and led to different developments, one of which was something called Paragon Credit Union that was started by a a group of Caribbean people who had um, come to central Brooklyn. And, you know, it's it's really the story of cooperatives in general, which is, you know, these are are people who were recent immigrants, not all, but many, you know, coming from Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana, we're here in the United States, and yet found themselves completely redlined and locked out of the banking and financial system, and so really took to heart this idea of black people doing for themselves, self-determination in the economic realm. And so, you know, one of the great things about credit unions are they're one of the few state-sanctioned institutions that we can sort of use and for our own purposes. In Paragon, I think at the time was a, was a state 
chartered credit union. But other credit unions have been federally insured and federally secured. And and the, the bottom line is, instead of going to a bank, you go to a credit union, you deposit your money there, um, and you then the, the the collective pooling of those finances is then redistributed to people through financial services and loans, mortgages, all the things that are considered to be the lifeblood of the economic lifeblood of a community. A, right. a credit union um, can provide, and that's what Paragon did at that time. What you just talked about with the self-determination and the value, the cooperative values are self-help or self-determination, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. And in the tradition of the founders, cooperative members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others, caring for one another. And this is what, well, the the first thing I liked about co-ops was the fifth principle, training, education, information. But when I got into study and got these values of self-help, number one, and that's what I've, in growing up in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, uh, this self-help piece was was really important. And too often we look for somebody else to help us. And I wish I had known about co-ops much earlier, and it seemed like you got it. But your Paragon Credit Union was the Caribbean people coming together, putting their resources together, putting their pennies and dollars together, and so that when somebody had a need, they could uh, go to the credit union to get that satisfied. Wonderful. It works. And you started right. the credit union. Yes, I did. Um, you know, I, I brought up Paragon to just illustrate the point that there's very little that's new, right? I mean, I, and I think it's important to recognize what gives us inspiration, the, the people who sort of blaze the path, who had a vision that supports the visions that we have today. So by the time I got on the scene in the, the late 80s and early 90s, not only did I know about Paragon, but there were other institutions in central Brooklyn that had been started by, I guess you can call them black nationalists, people who really believed in the power not just of the economic power of black people, but the political, social, cultural power of black people, and really committed themselves to building institutions that would not only be monuments to that, but would enshrine this power and would facilitate that power. And so I, you know, I saw all of that. You had something in Brooklyn called the African Street Festival, for instance, that has since kind of evolved into something else. But there was, you know, um, at Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn, around the 4th of July weekend, rather than, you know, participating in the American, white American brand of patriotism, you had this festival that lasted three days with um, black vendors from across the diaspora where people would come. You had entertainers there. You had cultural shows. Tens of thousands of people would sort of amass and come together and support each other. I mean, you had all these black vendors that were coming not only from Brooklyn, but from across the country, who would, like, make more in this weekend than they would probably make throughout the rest of the year. Wow. Simply because we recognize the, the power of black genius, of, of, the, of the dollar staying, you know, in our neighborhood, and of cooperative work and responsibility. Um, so these are things that were beacons to me. 
you know, there were food co-ops that had been established in, in central Brooklyn. There were cooperative black schools that were started in central Brooklyn. And so when I got on the scene, I had, you know, grown up with this, had seen this. And so my starting the credit union was a way of continuing that legacy and really trying to create an alternative to the banking system. I didn't come to this like you, you know, through an MBA or through an understanding of of mathematics or economics. I really came to this as a community organizer and a social justice activist. Um, And so, you know, we found the credit union as a vehicle to counter the narrative of capitalism and to create a way to, again, trap black capital, um, but to do it in a way that had community-based values, democratic values. You know, we were a democratically run financial institution. And essentially put this, you know, we, we, our board was the, uh, elected by the, the membership. So we really tried to build an institution that was owned and operated by local people. So you said trap black wealth? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like that. Right, because, I mean, what we recognize is in a, a neighborhood like Central Brooklyn, where you had literally hundreds of thousands of black people living, you had businesses in the area that were not either not black-owned or had no interest in investing in the, in the neighborhood. You had housing that was not owned by black folks. And so, you know, every time you played your rent, the money was leaving. And then you had institutions like banks that would take deposits from the neighborhood, but then go build housing and support small businesses elsewhere. And so as soon as money was brought into the neighborhood, it would quickly leave. And so a credit union was a way of, Recycling black dollars, taking the wealth that we were bringing to the neighborhood and then reinvesting it back in to local people. I mean, as if you know anything about credit unions, you know that they provide services to the people who join in our depositors. And so, you know, our we, we became known as a black bank. In fact, our tagline was that we were a, the world's first hip hop credit union. Um, because I I had made a a note of saying that we were just simply, you know, like like hip-hop music takes music from the past and then puts a new spin on it. You know, we were essentially sampling um, a vision from from previous years and then putting a a new spin on it. Um, And so we really sort of captured the imagination of people at that time and within a few years became the largest, credit union of our kind um, in, in the country at simply by taking in deposits and then providing loans and financial services. Not only, not only were we sort of countering what banks were doing, but countering what check cashing operations were doing and other service providers, quote unquote, who were in our neighborhoods, but who were, were, were operating in what we consider to be an exploitative way, charging high fees, not being, you know, not reinvesting in the neighborhood. Um, and so I use the word trapping very intentionally as finding a way of keeping our money working on our own behalf. Well, that's why it, it caught my attention because I've never thought of it that way. And with the MBA, yeah. 
I had learned in economics class that in in poor people's community, money may turn one or two times. It comes in and goes out. Right. And in right. wealthier neighborhoods, it's five, six, seven, eight times. The more it turns, the more it in, stays in that neighborhood, the, the the wealthier the neighborhood becomes. So, yeah, I, I, I got it, and that's why I love co-ops. That's why you just right, you, right. You described the, the co-op bank. Now, we've got to take our next break, so I don't want to cut you off. Sure. We've got about another minute sure. before we take our next break. So what were you going to say? No, I was just going to talk about a game that we used to play among the young people in our credit union that helped illustrate the point you were just making. So I can I can talk about that after the break. Okay. So everybody out there, we have Mr. Mark Winston Griffin online with us. He has already talked about different types of co- uh, co-ops, credit unions, food co-ops, housing co-ops. Land trust is not a co-op, but that's a great way of putting a housing co-op. He's talked about that on a land trust to really create affordable housing for a long, long, long time. So... We're going to take our next break to get the weather, the traffic, and the news, and then we'll be right back to talk more about the way money turns or does not turn in communities to create wealth, and we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM WOF, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We talk to you about the benefits of co-ops. Um, Mark Griffith has been talking about that. He's from New York. And Mark, uh, before we go any further, I'd like to give definitions of co-ops. We've talked about a number of co-ops, but i like to make the distinctions. Co-ops depend on who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the people that work in the business, the employees, then it's called a worker cooperative. So you can have any business you can think of. Any business could be owned and controlled by the employees and therefore have a worker cooperative. Then there's a businesses that's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services. And those right, are called consumer cons- co-ops. Consumer right. co-ops, right on. And those consumer co-ops are housing co-ops or credit unions. Um, in Madison, Wisconsin, Mark, there is a, a clinic, a, a health clinic that's owned by the patients. So it's patient-centric clinic. So the, any kind of co-op. Now, food co-ops could are mo- normally consumer co-ops, but sometimes they are also owned by, well, I know one here in the district is owned by the employees. It's a worker co-op, but they could be hybrids right. owned by both the consumer and the employees. Right. Okay. Now you got two other quick ones. And that is if a purchasing co-op, uh, a lot of farmers are using these artists are beginning to use them where they come together and they get some employees that get skill sets to go out and talk to vendors to buy the things they need. Farmers would need fertilizer and, and seed and gasoline, and even they may buy equipment together, or they may buy warehouses and refrigeration together. Um, so the other side of that is, well, here in the district, we have something called CPA, um, Community Purchasing Alliance, that was was created to for churches and nonprofits. And it turns out that churches, churches were really getting ripped off for services, trash, utilities and by coming together and getting this organization to buy from them, they were able to save money. A lot of times co-ops help you to save money and get better quality on the other end for farmers and artists is, um, marketing co-ops. And so you get people to come together and create a business, Lando lakes, uh, ocean spray, Cabot creamery are types of, 
uh, co-ops that farmers would, would belong to and they take their products to these co-ops and they create more and more markets so that the farmer can spend his time creating his product, producing whatever he's creating, and then somebody else is selling it. And you have people that's buying what he needs. Artists are beginning to do it. Um, there's an artist called Ujama in Pittsburgh that are mainly black women that have come together and they, they have created a storefront that they sell their goods to. I think in the back of it is where they produce some of their goods and then they come in the front and they sell their goods. So we're beginning to see a lot of different ways. I've heard of a co-op mark of musicians and they, they, one of the things that they were, they was, studying trying to resolve is income for musicians are sporadic. They either, you know, fast or famine. And so they are creating a co-op where one musician may have money coming in this month. The other one doesn't. And the next month, the one that didn't have it last month has some, and they're beginning to share income so they can spread out their income. They're even talking about, you know, getting housing together and so forth. So co-ops work in a whole lot of different ways uh, for people, and that's what you're talking about, and that's why I'm so glad you're on the, on on the on the uh, station with because you describe it better than I do, bro. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I don't know about that, <laughs> but um, I mean, because what you just laid out was a you just laid out a cooperative clinic, you know, <laughs> where you just broke all that down. Um, I thought that was excellent, and you know, it's the way you broke it down is a way in which um, I probably need to bring into the classroom with me because I do some teaching sometimes and around community organizing, but also talk about co-ops. And I think you did a, a beautiful job of really just helping people understand the different kinds. Because, you know, I think co-op is just one of those terms that we use very loosely, and people sort of nod their head and go along with it. But oftentimes people don't really know how they work they don't. and what the, ben- what the benefit is. And, um, you know, on some level, yes, there, there's a certain sophistication to some of them, but on – on another level, it's it's so basic to how we live and how we function, and that's why we have so many. We see so many indigenous cultures, so many cultures, you know, sort of um, pre-Western or not or non-Western cultures, or even Western cultures. Um, you know, really ones that don't have um, uh, have not been completely sort of enveloped by capitalistic institutions and modern institutions, people need to get by on their own, need to find a way to survive. And so you see co-op formations happening just everywhere. Um, and I, I, I challenge anyone to, you know, talk about their own family and own history and not find a place where their own ancestors did not practice some form of, of cooperativism. So it's 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 something that yes, on one level, people it, it's, uh, people need to sort of learn to understand. But it's another thing. But it's also like right underneath our noses, and the concept is so basic um, and uh, and natural to the way we do things and the way we survive. That that, and that that's what makes cooperativism, I think, such a such a great thing. And it happens survive. in rural areas, it happens in urban areas, it happens, you know, in all sorts of settings. Well, that, I, I, what you just said, I could I could probably spend the rest of the time talking about, but um, Ubuntu, have, are you familiar with that term? I, I am, yes. And uh, I 
got familiar with it on this program, had somebody on it, talked about it. And then I got Jim Joseph, who was the ambassador to South Africa when Mandela was there. He's a black man. And he, I had him on his show to talk about it and talking about the fundamentals uh, that in Southern Africa, Ubuntu is I am because you are and you are because I am. That's nothing but cooperation. We, we exist for each other. And therefore, Mandela could not hurt the jailers and the people that put him in jail for 27 years because he would be hurting himself. And it's a phenomenal way of looking at life. And that's what, to me, is what the, is, is at the core of co-ops, is caring for one another. Um, and that, that I, I, goes all the way back. I, I, totally, I totally agree. And, you know, one of, the, one of the frustrations with the credit union was that people kept talking about it as a black bank, right, And which, which it's not um, in a very fundamental way. I think that because oftentimes capitalism sort of, you know, uh, dominates our imagination, we don't fully appreciate how connected we are to one another. So, you know, I, I, it's something I'm sure you've probably talked about on the show, I talk about it a lot of times. For anyone who's ever seen the, the movie, it's a wonderful life. Right, it's my favorite it's in, about in, in Bedford, New York. Okay, <laughs> right, right. Jimmy Stewart, and there's there's this moment where everyone there's a run on the bank, and everyone wants their money, and he says, "Look, it doesn't work that way, right? You bring in your money, and then I use this money to to give to this person for their needs, or to that person for that need. So you know, when you take out your money, or when you do something, when you don't pay back a loan." In essence, that hurts. It hurt. It hurts all of us, and it hurts you. And that's what was really, um, you know. I think if I had to do a critique of our running of the credit union, we didn't do enough to help people understand the difference between a credit union and a bank. That is, when they defaulted on their loan, or when they acted in some way that did not have the full integrity. You know. They weren't, you know, unlike a bank where, you know, you've got a, a set of, of stake of shareholders who are completely divorced from you, don't know, don't care about you, and it's a multi-billion dollar institution. With a credit union, in, in the credit union we had, when you didn't pay back a loan, you hurt us all, you know. And ultimately, we ran into some problems with the credit union because our, our loan portfolio, you know, had struggled, and it's because – not just because people were struggling financially, but because people did not fully appreciate the fact that they were connected to one another. Right. And that when, when they defaulted, they were defaulting on themselves. Jimmy Stewart did a great job, and I probably have looked at that movie once or twice a year for all my life, almost, it seemed. Um, but I also liked right after that, when they had 2 or $3 left, and they they – Talked right, about the mama two- dollar and the papa dollar. Yeah. <laughs> they <called> it. <laughs> and they were going to hatch some more dollars. I mean, they, right, they right. sang a song and then they marched into the, into the vault and they put that <laughs> the in. Vault, right. Yeah. It, it was like gold. This is it. And we, we're going to take these two or three dollars and hatch more dollars and then grow. That's working together. Where, and everybody right, puts right. their 10 cents or five cents dollar in. And then you get something, and then you loan it out so some people can have houses. That's what he was telling them. They, it was a exactly. savings and loans more than a bank. And so that when they put exactly. money in, that money was gone for Joe or Jim or Sue or Sally to buy a house. And so that money was in a house. It wasn't in the bank anymore or in savings and loans right. in this case. 
Right, so yeah, right. that was an education, and that education doesn't happen as well as I would like for it to be because. Ten years ago, I, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. I haven't grown up yet, but when I grow up, I want to be mm-hmm. a promoter and developer of co-ops. That's yeah. it because of the things that we're talking about here today uh, that yeah. are benefit yeah. folks in marginalized communities, whether they're from the Caribbeans or they've lived here uh, all of their lives but live in neighborhoods that are low and moderate income neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy. All right, man. But yeah. we got to get that education where people understand what a co-op is and how it, we all working together. Um, and so, and, and when you talked about rural, just real quickly, I didn't talk about the rural electrics, but the rural electrics, uh, in, in uh, 1930s that folks didn't have electricity and you know, on farms and stuff. And, um, and right now in the rural electrics, 75% of the land mass for the grid for electricity is by these rural electric co-ops. Um, eighty percent of the meters, I think they said, not not eighty percent of eighty percent of the counties in the U.S. are serviced by these rural electric co-ops, um, where people have come together, put their money together, and the people that this is consumer co-ops, the people that use the electricity own the business and they elect their um, board of directors. So yeah, that's it. It, it solves problems. That's what co-ops do: solve community problems. One guy, Mark from. Senegal, uh, my, we've been on five years now this October, and it's first October, he said, his name is Papa Sin from Senegal, he said if there's no if a community doesn't have any any problem, there's no need for a co-op. You only need them when you have problems. Oh, you've talked about the credit unions and solving that money problem and, and uh, trapping money so it stays in the community and we can create wealth. So what other co-ops have you been doing, working with? Well, right now, I'm very much involved in building something called the Central Brooklyn Food Co-op, which is a food co-op here in, in, in Central Brooklyn. Um, and that, you know, to the point that we were just making about, you know, getting people to understand, getting people to understand how co-ops work. I think what is what is interesting and important about the food co-op that we're building is that over the over the years, most food co-ops um, function in a way where you have some people who shop there who are members and some people who shop there who are not members. And I think that you know I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with me, but I think that on some level that can erode the integrity and concept of, of a co-op. And so what we've done is that we're building a, a food co-op that is in the image of one of the most successful food co-ops in the country, which is called the Park Slope Food Co-op, where in order to shop there, you have to be a member. Um, and on one level, it seems restrictive, but in the form, but in the, the case of, of Park Slope, you have 16,000 people who are members of that food co-op. And who Mark. every month put in five hours of their time, and who have invested money in that food co-op. But we're gonna, we're gonna take our they, we got to take our last break. I'm gonna come back and talk about Central okay. Brooklyn Food Co-op. We'll be right back. Talk 1450 AM WO at 95. 
Information is power. Now, you know, National Cooperative Bank uh, sponsors this program. NCB was created to address the financial needs of traditionally underserved markets. That's Bed-Stuy and rural uh, communities. But they also work for cooperatively owned organizations that operate for the benefits of their members, not outside investors. And that's one of the benefits of co-ops that Mark Griffin and I have been talking about. And Mark, we want to go back to the Brooklyn Food Co-op. I heard you say that you're, you are helping to establish this so that only members can shop. Right. And we don't think of it as a, as a restriction. We think of it as a way to make sure that everyone is equal. Um, so that, for instance, um, not only everyone equal, but to make sure that we can bring down prices dramatically. If you, if everyone in the food co-op has is putting in five hours of their sweat equity, they're behind the counter, they're they're um, stocking the shelves, they're doing technology, they have some kind of role in running the institution, and every one of them has a financial equity stake in the institution. And that means that that enables you to um, offer food at lower prices. But just as importantly, it means that someone can't just walk in off the street, you know, decide they want to pay a higher price, um, not contribute to the food co-op. And then in in, in many ways, um, you know, in a neighborhood like Central Brooklyn that is quickly gentrifying, what we don't want to set up is a two-tiered system where you have non-members, um, enjoy some privileges and members um, don't even get to enjoy some privileges. Um, so this is a way of equalizing everything. So everyone who joins the, the everyone who shops at the food co-op has to be a member, which means they have to be an equity stakeholder, um, which means they have to be an investor. And again, there are not a lot of models like this across the country. Um, and there are a lot, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who are saying that this can't work in central Brooklyn. We want to try to, we want to prove them wrong. Um, in the same way the Park Slope Food Co-op has proved it wrong. And, and actually the Park Slope Food Co-op is most profitable grocery store per square foot in the country. Now, we have a different population in Park Slope, obviously, but we deeply believe that if we're going to start a, uh, something that is truly a co-op and everyone is going to be able to function in an equitable fashion, then everyone who participates has to be a member. Do you know what kind of savings Park Slope has? What kind of savings? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm talking I, I about their their reserves, what they have in their bank account for in terms of savings. I was I was in I, New I, York and there was a there was a co-op and I don't know if it was Park Slope and I have a food co-op. They had something like I don't know, 40 million dollars in reserves. <laughs> it was some Well, huge, if there's any if there's a food co-op in New York that has it, it's got to be Park Slope. I mean, there's nothing else like it, not only in New York City. There's really nothing like it in, in, in the country. Um, so if – I don't know what their reserves are, but if – and 40 million sounds like a lot to me. It, well, but, what, whatever the millions was, I, I, I don't remember the numbers, right. so I could be off. It could have been 20 or 30, 40, 50, 60. I don't know. But it was huge. <laughs> I was going, wow. Yeah. Well, well, well I know Park Slope has a substantial – reserve it it park slope is so successful that it actually does not have room to bring in any more members it cannot it doesn't it can't figure out it can't create any more work slots for people 
And so what they're actually looking to do is start another food co-op just so they can have a place where, where another place where their members can go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, it's probably not fair to trot that out as an example because in some ways Park Soap is like a unicorn um, in how unique it is in this country. But, you know, I, I, I'm part of the movement because I really believe in cooperative values. There are a lot of food co-ops that are called co-ops, but in actuality, people, um, most of the people who shop there, they're not owners, they're not consumer owners, they're not worker owners. They have no kind of equity stake in the institution. And so in my, I mean, I don't want to hate on those places, but I just think that they're not co-ops in the purest form of, of the word. And because of that, they avoid, um, they, they sort of circumvent some of the, the values and democracy and the um, profit sharing that a, a true co-op actually focuses on. So that I want to quickly go through the value, the principles um, and tell me if, right. if your co-op, the, the Brooklyn food co-op will use Central these. Brooklyn food co-op. Yeah. Yes. And we, and to be fair, we have not opened our doors yet. We just we just opened up our membership and hoping hoping to open our doors in 2019. Fantastic. So we have volunteer and open membership. That's correct. Principle number one. Okay. Does it make a difference about gender or race or social or economic background, religious? No, 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 no none of that crap. Okay. Everyone is anyone can join. Although we are we are really trying to center. Um, low and moderate income, long-term residents, black folks in central Brooklyn who do not feel like the current generation of grocery stores are, are marketed to them. Doesn't meet their needs. Right. I mean, we're, we're a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. And so you see where this used to be called a food desert. Now you're seeing some kind of form of, you know, food redlining and food apartheid where um, people are, you know, are just not, seen as the primary market for these new um, grocery stores that are coming into our neighborhood. Democratic member control. Most definitely. One member, one vote. Okay. That's right. Member economic participation. You talked about some buy-in and then when there's profit, then there's some distribution. Or the members decide what to do with that profit. Exactly. Okay. Autonomy and independence. The members control everything. That's it, most most definitely. Number five, we've talked about education, training, and information. You're going to train them about what a co-op is and then train the community about what a co-op is. Yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, part of what we're trying to do with the food co-op, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, we're a retail grocery store, so we have to pay attention to that. But, you know, the, the thing about Central Brooklyn Food Co-op is that it's also being sponsored by my, my nonprofit organization called the Brooklyn Movement Center, which is a community organizing group. And so we want to make sure that there is a layer of training and education that goes on, not just about cooperative values, but around food and around nutrition, um, around how do you build a successful food system in central Brooklyn that is owned and operated by um, local people and that can stave off gentrification and displacement. So it's not only training and education, but a certain level of advocacy and and organizing that's going to happen in co- in, in conjunction 
with the sell, sale of food and, and the food co-op. So will you do any urban farming? Will you have any farms on the rooftops or anything like that? Well, that, that, that that's a good possibility. I mean, I to be completely honest, I'm not an urban farmer. That's not my skill set. But that is the skill set of a lot of people who are part of the food co-op. So I can easily see that. You know, we're also um, going to be joining forces with something called Brooklyn Sprouts, which is a youth-run food producer that's going to be looking to sell. It's an urban market that's going to be looking to sell this product to schools and other institutions in the neighborhood. So very much so, we're going to somehow work that into the 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 experiment of the of the food co-op phenomenal so what about cooperation among co-ops oh very much so you know one of the things we haven't talked about is that i'm on the board of something called scenic which is the cooperative economics alliance of new york city which is trying to build what we call a solidarity economy in in new york city which means that we're trying to get co-ops of all types um, you know, uh, that is food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, um, you know, even um, community gardens, um, all sorts of, of co-ops, having them function together, do business with, with one another, you know, create, um, train one another, make sure we, we introduce new people, particularly low and moderate income people of color, to the cooperative movement and to really function as a movement. You know, to use our collective power to influence policy, to change the, um, you know, economic um, uh, configurations in New York City. So um, city government and institutions are sourcing from co-ops. Uh, and so, yes, the, we're, we're trying to do just that to right. um, strengthen cooperation among co-ops of all kinds in New York City. The seventh principle we don't want to talk about because I already know you're in it. That's concern for a community. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, very much so. That's where I start. But I want to give a shout out to Helen Rosenthal, who's been on the program, who's helped to get create money for worker co-ops in New York, and yep. Roger Green, who's been taking failed hospitals. Oh my God, very very close ally of mine, yeah, Roger. I assume, I've known I've known Roger for over thirty years. I assume so. He's he's been on the program talking about taking hospitals and making them into co-ops. Um, yeah, we have, a, and we we're working very closely with him in 1199, the um, the hospital work um, hospital workers union here. So, last word: What do you want to tell people? What do you want to leave people with? Um, well, just that last piece, you know, that this has the potential. The food co-op that we're bringing, and co-ops in general, you know, I think that so often we sort of focus inward, but it really can become a place of real power for a neighborhood, a place of advocacy, mm-hmm. a place that a, 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 a shining, you know, beacon on the hill that really shows an alternative way of, of doing business and of respecting and loving one another. And if nothing else, you know, I, I think it's all about that. And I, it's, it's, yes, it's about economics, but it's about much, much more. It's about economics. It's about community building. And it's about democracy. Thank you. Co-ops for people first. Exactly. Planet, profit, and then politics. Please, everybody, get out and vote November 6th. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye now. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, 95.9 FM.